Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRose Show. Today's guest is macro researcher Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, which specializes in macro analysis for institutional investors. Jim is one of my favorite macro thinkers out there. In this conversation, we talk about these three bubbles that have popped, and now we have entered this new post-pandemic economy. Now, in this new era, there is great change and volatility and tremendous opportunity if you catch the change right. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jim. I learned a ton, and I think you will too. Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research, it is so great to finally meet you and have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Well, to kick things off, uh, let's start a bit about, like, with a bit about you. I want to hear a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, in the beginning, there was light. Uh, I mean, I could go back that far if you want, but I'll speed up a little bit and say uh, I'm a Midwesterner. I um, was born and raised in the Chicago area, left and went to New York for several years, and now I'm back in the Chicago area. Graduated Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I got an MBA from Fordham University uh, in New York City uh, when I was there. Uh, when I was in um, New York City, I uh, really got my first job in the financial sector working for, and I'll get the name right, Shearson and Lehman Brothers before it became Lehman Brothers. Then I started working at Credits, uh, excuse me, first Boston before <laughs> it was Credit Suisse. And then I worked at a firm called UBS Phillips and Drew, which had all of maybe 80 employees when I first went there. It was their first foray. UBS is foray into the United States. And now, of course, they're a massive financial services firm with a big footprint um, in the United States. Along the way, one of my customers was a bond brokerage firm in Chicago called Arbor Trading Group. Uh, they then wooed me to come work for them as the uh, director of research. And uh, from 1990 to 1998, I was the director of research for Arbor. And in 1998, within Arbor, I spun myself off into Bianco Research, celebrating our 24th year in existence. Arbor remains my, uh, my partner. Uh, I own part of Arbor. Arbor owns a part of me. Uh, and it's been a very good relationship over that nearly quarter century. So that's a bit of uh, about my background. My style tends to be macro with a bent towards fixed income. Since I am an independent person, I don't have to do the traditional stuff unless I want to. And that is, you know, what's your guess for the payroll report or which sectors are you overweighted or underweighted? And I'll dabble in that stuff when I think it's relevant. But most of the time, I'm trying to find stuff that either people are not emphasizing enough or are not focused on. I like that macro with a bent on fixed income. And congratulations on 24 years. And you mentioned some Thank names you. that are a bit of a throwback in there. And um, I think one yeah, of the, some of those firms don't even exist. Exactly. <laughs> um, or even when we when, when they were on the way out, we didn't even call them by those names either. But, you know, right. you are um, a prolific um, macro researcher. I see your stuff everywhere and I follow you on Twitter. And that's why I'm really excited just because everything happening in this world, I can't think of a better person to just have this conversation with. So let's start big picture, um, your views of the macro economy and financial markets. Yeah, so let's start with the economy. Um, in Prior to 2020, we used to talk about whether or not there was an everything bubble, whether there was a bond bubble, whether there was a stock bubble. We used the word bubble a lot. 
I, I think there was three bubbles and none of them were financial market related. There was a bubble of cheap labor, uh, either through immigration or through globalization. Uh, that held wages down. That's why most of the time real wages didn't do much of anything for the last 25 years. I'm talking pre-pandemic. And that's why you had all these populist movements. If you went back to the 1990s, you may or may not remember the movie Falling Down with Michael Douglas, which was kind of a precursor to the populist movements that we got, whether it was the Tea Party movement, Occupy Wall Street, Brexit, Trump's election, or anything else along the way. That's the first bubble. But in order to offset that bubble, you don't get a raise because of massive globalization. We had a bubble in cheap goods. Thank you, China. So everything at Walmart and Target just kept getting ever and ever cheaper. So while you weren't getting a raise, you weren't losing your purchasing power because of that, that uh, bubble there. There was a third bubble going on as well. Europe being a little bit more bureaucratic and higher cost, they had a bubble of cheap energy. And that largely came from Russia um, through the pipelines of, that we're talking about now and through energy as well. Russia is still the largest producer of crude oil in the world, even larger than um, Saudi Arabia. Now, all of those bubbles were kind of extinguishing themselves going into 2020. The movement towards cheap labor was giving away towards, you know, more towards higher cost countries and labor going up. We were already starting as early as 2018 with the trade wars with with Trump, that we were having problems with uh, China and the movement towards cheap energy was being undercut by ESG and a lot of other wind and solar and all these other alternative energy movements. Then we got the pandemic. And what a pandemic typically does is it speeds up all of the trends that you had in place. And I think that the trends that we are seeing now in the post-pandemic era are things that were going to happen. They're just We've jumped ahead 25 or 30 or 35 years, and we're, we're way ahead of where we should be, and we've put all this change in at once. You've seen the work from home movement. That is giving worker, you know, that workers have the upper hand, 3.7% unemployment. People don't want to go back to the office. We've had the great resignation. We've got people feeling a lot more emboldened about taking control of, well, if my boss doesn't like it, I'll just quit and do another job. We've seen the movement towards away from globalization, just-in-time just in inventories re, re being replaced by just-in-case. Reshoring has become a word as well. Cheap, cheap energy, we're probably going to talk about this later in the interview, as far as what we're seeing happen in Russia and with what they're doing with their natural gas. All of those trends are over to some degree. We are not going to go back to globalization. We are not going to go back to send everything to China because they make it the cheapest. We are not going to kiss and make up with Russia and they're going to send cheap gas back to Europe after this episode that we've seen. And so I think what we've been seeing is this movement away from those three bubbles, as I'd like to call it. And the problem with 2022 is, if I was to give you a historical analogy, the closest one I've got is after World War II. And, but the big, big difference is in 1947, two or three years after the war ended, everybody knew we were headed to a new era. Nobody was pining for, when do I get my job back making Sherman tanks or fighter planes? That era was over. 
we were moving forward. But in 2022, we're talking the Tuesday after Labor Day. To give you an idea of how cemented in the past everybody is, is today there's a big, today is the big day that all of Wall Street is trying to get everybody back into the office. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Jeffries, up and down the line, they want everybody back in the office because they still believe it's 2019. And they still believe that eventually what you're going to see is a return to the past, that we are not in a new era. We have not sped up the calendar 25 years and that we have to start thinking about that the world has changed. Because of all of this, I think you're seeing two things, tremendous economic uh, financial market volatility and economic volatility as we started to change along the way. And the second thing is the frictions and the inefficiencies of the changes that we've seen are leading to persistent and chronic inflation. The economies are not as efficient as they used to be. And we need to start thinking about how to make them efficient in this post-pandemic world, but we don't want it to have that word post-pandemic. We'd rather have an argument whether there is a post-pandemic world. So that's the big picture of how I see this. That I don't believe what I said is a apocalyptic or pessimistic scenario. What it is is a scenario of great change and great volatility. So if you want to wonder, when are we going to go back to the Fed's going to cut rates to zero and pump money up and I don't have to do anything in my house and my portfolio just go up because, Tina, there is no alternative. That era is over. There is a new era now where there's going to be tremendous change and tremendous opportunity if you catch that change right. But if the if if you want, if you but you have to do some work and you have to try and figure it out. But what you're not going to get is just throw a dart at it, buy it, and just wait. The Fed will print it higher. I think that era has ended. Jim, that was incredible. There's so many um, places to go within that. And it was it's like a really nice outline, I think, for this entire conversation. So I'll just start to um, bring up some of the areas you mentioned, and then I'll let you take it away from there. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned like the time that you would analogize this to is right after World War II. Like, let's explore that a little bit further in some of the parallels that you see. And you mentioned the difference being, uh, you know, people don't have that recognition of like, we're not going back to the way it was in 2019. Yeah. So after World War II, what you saw was tremendous change in the economy. The economy was transitioning from a wartime economy to a peacetime economy. And eventually that led to the big booms that you saw in the 1950s. But between, say, 1946 and the early 1950s, you had a period of tremendous uh, financial market and economic volatility. You had two recessions, one in 46, one in 49. You had in 1946, I know a lot of people don't realize this, the highest inflation rate of the 20th century. Inflation got well over 20% um, during that period. Now, part of that was you were releasing uh, wartime price controls, and that led to a big surge of inflation. And then inflation went down. And then in 1949, 1950, you had a secondary surge of inflation with another recession. And then things settled down. And then through the 50s and into the mid 60s, you had a, a big boom. I think that that's a very good analogy for what we're probably going to see over the next six or seven years as the economy restructures itself for a post-pandemic economy. Now, let me restate that. It, this is a digital economy right now. One of the things about a digital economy is it's very different than the old analog economy. But we've been kind of operating 
in a digital world with analog tools. Now that we've sped things up because of the pandemic, work from home, to put a number on that for you, about 50% of the jobs in the United States you cannot do at home. You cannot be a policeman at home or a surgeon at home or a waitress at home, um, a construction worker at home. The other 50%, you can do somewhat remotely. About 15% of those jobs are being done fully remote. About 60 or 70% of those jobs are somewhat remote, two days, three days in an office or a gathering with your other employees. And the rest of them are still full time um, as well. That is part of the digital economy. The economy has changed now that you can do a lot of those jobs remotely. We've shown over the last two years that that can happen as well. And that's why we've been moving in that direction. Things like crypto uh, is another example. I, I've argued, and I'm a big fan, a big uh, fan of crypto, that in the digital economy, the current payment system and the current banking system is an analog banking system that was developed in the 19th century. And it just, it has been modernized, but it's a 19th century idea that's been modernized. It doesn't work for the 21st century digital economy. We need a brand new payment system. We need a brand new financial system. And that's what I see with DeFi. That's what I see in the crypto space. Now it's got fits and starts. It's not ready for prime time. It's moving in that direction. Another example of where we're, where we're starting to go with that. Along the way, that is creating tremendous friction and it's creating a tremendous divisiveness. That's part of the reasons why we're seeing, I think, the, um, you know, the tension that we've got between Russia and China and the West. Uh, are we ready to move forward with this new digital world? Some people just don't, are not ready or don't want to move forward with this new digital world or others want to move forward in this digital world in less than nefarious ways. And so that's why I think we're seeing a lot of friction in there as well, too. What I'm trying to argue is we are in a period of epic change, and that change is largely been the catalyst of the, the pandemic. We were going to be here eventually. What the pandemic did was it sped it all up in one fell swoop, and that's why we've got such a hard time digesting it. Mm -hmm. We'll get into geopolitics in, later in this conversation, but um, just to stay on this topic too, like you mentioned at the top of this, some of your experience at financial firms, you mentioned also that the, this is judgment day for the banks in New York. They're all going back. What do you think? Like, do you think this is going to work out for the banks? Do you think they're going to see their folks there five days a week or do you think they'll get some sort of pushback or what do you think? No, I think. I, I think, first of all, this is about the fourth or fifth judgment day that they've tried. And the other three or four failed before this. And this one will eventually fail. I think, you know, probably you're going to get a high number of people in the office today because it's the first day. And then eventually the, they're going to, you know, they're going to kind of peel off and they're going to go back to their remote work environment. Bottom line is the reason that remote work is so popular is it works productivity among a lot of the financial firms didn't really dip that much. Business got done at Goldman Sachs over the last two years. Uh, and two, people don't really like being in the office. I think they're trying to tell Dave Solomon over at Goldman Sachs, you know, that building at 200 West kind of sucks to be in there and I don't want to go to it. And I think that that's what you're hearing from them. Now they'll never say it out loud, 
but that's by their but by their actions or the new or the new billion dollar office tower that Jay and Jamie Dimon built for JP Morgan in Midtown. I don't want to be in that building. The politics, the commute, the time away from the family or other activities. Uh, I could do my job without that. Now, does that mean we don't need a reason for people to congregate that work together? Sure, we do. But I think what we need to do is say, we need to get together because we work together. But everything you thought about what an office was in 2020, put that aside. Let's forget that. Let's not rush in and stick you in a cubicle for seven hours a day so you can have a 30-minute meeting. Why do we get together? What do we accomplish? How often do we need to do it? Where do we do it? We're not ready to have those answers. Jamie Dimon just built a shiny new building. Get your ass in here. Get on the 38th floor into the cubicle third down from the left. That's what I want. I want this building full of human beings. That's not going to work in the long term, I think is really what happened. So this is part of the change. The old boomer manager generation doesn't want to change. The younger generation is ready for that change. And I think that we're starting to see that unfold. And that's why I think ultimately this big judgment day to get everybody back, eh, it will work for a couple of weeks or a month or two. But beyond that, I think it'll start to fizzle out after that. Yeah, you'd have to pay me some big bucks to get back on the subway. And I'm here in Miami now, and it's just much better, different lifestyle. Um, th- speaking of like another change, <laughs> I guess it's a question of like, has this changed? Is this going to be more persistent? Is the topic of inflation. I would love to explore this with you. And are we going to go back to 2019 when it's released? We're going to get rid of this inflation and go back to the way it was? Or is this going to be something that's more persistent? No, I, I've been, um, you know, basically since 2020, arguing that inflation was going to come back and it was going to be persistent. I never thought it was going to be 9%, um, you know, now eight and a half. I do think that, uh, count me in the camp that thinks that maybe 9.1% might have been the peak in inflation. Uh, but uh, core inflation, it, there's still a chance that its peak so far was 6.5% in March. It could still sneak out a new high maybe before the end of the year. But it isn't going back to two. I think it's going to go back to three, four, four and a half or something along those lines. Why? Because what were the drivers that kept inflation at bay? The first one was obviously globalization. Well, that one is being really challenged with reshoring. Look, we just passed a $50 billion chips bill to bring semiconductor production back to the United States. We're not looking to expand it more in Taiwan, where they can do it cheaper than we can do here. Uh, Labor shortage, uh, labor that management had the upper end to hold down labor either through immigration or through globalization, that's changing. You've seen a giant surge in wage inflation. Wage inflation is running at around 5% pretty consistently. And what that means in general is if we keep giving people 5% raises, they could keep paying 5% inflation or maybe 4.5% inflation. But if you're going to give people 5% wages and think that inflation is going to go back to two, it's not because they'll start bidding up for stuff that they really want because you're giving them more money than prices are rising after over time. So that's going to be another consistent thing as well. And then finally, the shortages that we've seen with energy and the like, yeah, I know crude oil prices are down and gasoline prices have fallen for 80 days in a row, but that's an anchoring thing because you know we're looking at it. It used to be $5 and it's $3.80. Boy, if I told you six months ago, yeah, the price of gasoline would be $3.85 on Labor Day, you would say, oh my God, that would be terrible. But because it's coming down from five in June to 3.85, we all 
want to think that the problem has been licked. It really hasn't. So that's going to keep everything very, very high. Work from home also has another thing too. When you have more time at home or remotely, your consumption basket changes. You consume more things, less services. Uh, and because of that, the, the retailers have really found this out. There's a big inventory problem at the Walmarts and at the targets of the world. And why is there an inventory problem? Because when Omicron faded and they said, everybody's going to come back to the, uh, come back and start shopping again, stock the shelves, stock the shelves with what? The proportions of stuff they bought in 2019. And what we find out, we don't buy stuff in those proportions anymore because a good number of us have changed our consumption basket because we've had a major lifestyle change, remote work. They're starting to figure that out. The problem with the supply chain, let me, let me be blunt about the American supply chain. It's terrible. It's not only is it terrible, the World Bank and S&P Global rank the efficiency of the 377 largest ports in the world. The worst port is Los Angeles. It's dead last. Next to Los Angeles at 369 is Long Beach. Then comes Savannah. Then comes Vancouver. Those are the bottom four. Above that is Angola, the Congo, and Nairobi. The Congo. You have to go to the Congo. We have to send the port heads of Los Angeles to the Congo to learn how to make their ports more efficient. So when the consumption basket changes, our supply chain cannot adapt to it. So what we have to do is we have to sit down and say, look, the world's changed. People want different things and different tastes, different ways. We have to change the way that we deliver it. We have to change the way that we manufacture it. We have to change the supply chain. But what does Wall Street tell you? Oh, no, just hold your breath and wait. And it will magically fix itself and go away. Give it six more months and there won't be any more supply chain problem. There will be a chronic supply chain problem. It won't be the reopening problems that we had in late 21, but it's certainly not going to be back to pre-pandemic levels. To give you an example of what I'm talking about, shipping costs. To ship a container right now costs about $4,000. To ship it from, uh, from uh, China to the, uh, to the West Coast of the United States, it's down from $9,000. And Wall Street's going around, look, the price has gone down by more than half. It was less than $1,000 pre-pandemic. It's still 400% higher than 2019. It's not 900% higher than 2019, but it's not going back to pre-pandemic levels because we have a terrible supply chain system that needs to be upgraded and revamped because we've had a major change in the way that we want to consume things and it's just too brittle to handle it. So it's like the new normal, those sorts of prices. I, and that does that right. just that extends, it's not just like supply chain. It could be pretty much anything that we purchased. We just get used to, like we got used to, we we're shocked by the prices and it comes back down, but it's still not where it was. So we just accept it. Yeah, that's anchoring, you know, is what it is. Is that, you know, when Wall Street is anchoring with, uh, you know, we're anchoring with, with gasoline prices. Oh, look how cheap it is. It's $3.90 a gallon. Well, yeah, that used to be an intolerably high number six months ago. Look how cheap, you know, supply, shipping costs are. They're down from late 21. Yes, but they're up four times from pre-pandemic. And this is all part of the change that the economy needs to undergo. And like I said, people kind of acknowledge it, but they kind of half acknowledge it. You know, you, you'll hear Wall Streeters all the time say, well, when the economy, when things return to normal, 
And the way I like to say it is, this is normal. Get used to it. This is the new normal. It's already done changing. This is normal. You're asking, when we go back to 2019, when we get 5 million people on the New York City subway every day, as opposed to 2.8 million, which is what we've got now. We're not going back to 5 million people on the New York subway system every day because we're not going back to the 2019 type of um, type of experience. When we start buying stuff like we did in the proportions of 2019, we're not going to do that. And so that's where I think that the disconnect comes. You hear this disconnect from economists too a lot because they considerly, they can, can still believe inflation is this one-off thing. Oh, we run up to 9%. Eventually, inflation is going to trail off to 2% in two years, and then that's the end of it. It'll be a 2% for the next generation because that's what it was pre-2020. We're not going to go back to that until we have a major restructuring of the economy. Find a new cheaper source of energy other than Russia. You know, Change the supply chain system so it's not as brittle. And maybe have some kind of equilibrium in the labor force so that we don't have to keep giving everybody a 5% wage raise to keep them coming back into the office. Eventually, all that will happen. But that's not just going to happen by osmosis. It's going to happen through a lot of considered investment and a lot of considered focus. And we're just not ready to do that yet. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to explore that with you as well. Um, But before I get there, let me just bring up the Federal Reserve with you. I would just love to hear from you, like, what's your assessment of the Fed over the last couple of years, even I guess even more recently, too? Like, what's what's your overall assessment of the Fed? Oh, um, you know, a gentleman's see, if not worse. Uh, and, and the reason is, is because they blew it. They blew it in a big way. They overstimulated following the pandemic. So did the fiscal authorities. So let's not just stick the Fed on there. Um, we, we primed the pump too much. We sent out too much money. The Fed did too much QE and they've helped to, they've helped to drive inflation. It, and to the Fed's credit, I think that there's a today there's a, a a difference of opinion as to what is cause of inflation. You'll hear some people at the Fed say, "Well, the Fed can't print ships, they can't print oil, they can't print people." That was a Neil Kashkari thing. He said look, uh, last week that they can't print people, implying that there is only only a supply chain problem causing inflation. There is a supply chain problem causing inflation. That's not the only thing that's causing it. There is an excess demand problem as well. The excess demand came from printing too much money, mailing out too many checks, priming the pump. San Francisco Fed did a study, and they said that there was only one developed country in the world that saw personal income. Personal income is your wages plus whatever investments you have rise during the pandemic. That was the United States because we mailed people money. People were sent home. 14 million people lost their jobs in March of 2020. They were all sent home. They were all mailed checks. The Fed primed the pump and everybody made money sitting at home doing nothing. Every other country did not experience that, what we did with the U.S. So over half the inflation is probably excess demand. So the Fed is, I think, correctly pointing out now they got to raise rates a lot in order to uh, rein in this excess demand part of inflation. Wall Street doesn't get it. That's why we talked about a pivot all summer. That's why we hear people talk about, oh, you wait, the Fed's going to cave, they're going to start printing, they cannot raise rates to four, four and a half, or five. There's this disbelief that the Fed would actually do that. 
Well, I understand that disbelief. There's two things about it. One, that's what they never did prior to 2020. At the first sign of a wobble, the printing presses were turned on and the Fed went crazy with QE or did not or delayed QT or delayed raising rates like they did in 2015 to just keep the to keep the gravy train going. And the second thing is, it's easy for Jay Powell to beat on his chest and say, I'm a hawk, I'm a hawk, I'm a hawk when you're printing 300,000 jobs a month. Ask him if he's a hawk when you're getting less than 50,000 jobs a month or maybe negative jobs. Now, we're not there yet. Uh, and so maybe he changes his tune. And I, so I, I'm open to that idea that the Fed could cave. But right now, I do think that the Fed is largely split along two lines. There's the Jay Powell wing of the Fed. And I this is my interpretation of the Fed. I think Jay Powell and others with him are believing that there's something secular about this rise of inflation and that there's an excess demand problem, which is why they have to raise rates. There's the Lael Brainerd wing of the Fed and the, and the staff of the Fed is largely with her. No, this is just a cyclical one-time rise. It will go away. We will return to 2%. We could cut rates back to zero and we could go back to QE. That, that, there's that wing too. Jay Powell's the chairman. Lael Brainerd's the vice chairman. So he wins for right now. But there's not a consensus at the Fed as to what to do. And to give you one example, my interpretation of there's no consensus, the Jackson Hole speech. The Jackson Hole, usually Jackson Hole is, it's an academic conference. It's big picture ideas. That was the perfect venue for Jay Paul to answer the question, what is the secular outlook of inflation? Where do we think it's going to go over the next five or 10 years and why? Explain to us why you think it's going to go to 2% or maybe not go to 2%. Instead, he gave an eight-minute speech, and it was, we're not going to pivot next year. And why did he give that short-term eight-minute speech? Because it's the only thing they can agree on. They cannot agree on what the secular outlook of inflation is. Now, I'm not going to bash them too much on that because it's a very difficult thing. I have my opinions about it, and I could be to totally wrong on it. Others have different opinions about the outlook for inflation, and they could be totally right. But right now, it's a difficult, it's a difficult subject. I think Paul was right when he was in Sintra, Portugal in June, when he said, what we've learned about inflation is how little we, un what we understand now about inflation is what, how little we understand about inflation. It is an enormously complicated idea as far as what causes inflation. Yeah. And I, I just want to bring up a couple of ideas with you. Um, you've pointed out, you know, attributing half of the inflation problem to excess demand. Can the Fed actually do anything about excess demand or I just want to explore an idea with you and I'm not an expert by any means. Um, but I just wonder like, do people get accustomed to a certain lifestyle? The checks during this, during the pandemic and they're used to buying certain things or living a certain lifestyle and they don't cut back. They still have that demand remains. Like, I don't know if that's even a valid point. I just brought no, up. It but is. It is. There's a moral hazard there, right? The, we had a near death experience and I made money is basically what happened. I either got checks cut to me or when I thought that my retirement was going away, they magically primed the, primed the stock market to new highs. And oh, by the way, according to Case Shiller, my house went up 18% last year. That was the average home price for Case Shiller. And here's an unbelievable statistic for you too. The average home price is so high now in the United States that the average home has gone up $60,000 in value 
in the last year. This is through June. So it's a little wow. bit dated three months, but it, but the average home went up $60,000 through June. The average salary in the United States is $54,000. More people made more money on their home going up in value in the 12 months ending in June than they did at their job. Nothing close to that happened in 2006, right before we had the housing bubble peak. Um, and so there's this moral hazard. Yeah, yeah, you know, don't worry. What happens when everything hits the fan and it gets ugly? Go to the mailbox. There'll be plenty of checks in the in their mailbox. That that so don't worry about it. If everything's hitting the fan and it's all falling apart, let's go buy a new car because the checks will be coming. So yes, we have that mentality. I think that uh, you know, if if my boss tells me I got to come back to the work to the office five days a week, I quit. Well, you don't have any other job. Yeah, I'll find one. Uh, you know, so this this cavalier attitude because it always works out. And why should I get myself stressed out and, and depressed about things that will come to happen that never do? And I, so I definitely think that there is that, that I'm going to live my life. I'm going to enjoy my life. I want a couple of days at home. I'm going to, you know, continue to spend. Look at, look at California. If you want another example, California has been saying that they've got this energy emergency. Please cut back. Don't charge your EVs because it's a, I, I, I don't know if you saw, but today it's supposed to be 110 degrees yeah. in, San, San, in Sacramento and it's supposed to be like 105 in LA. So please cut back because we've got this unbelievable uh, energy emergency. What did they find out in the last 24 hours? They consumed more energy than any other day in the last seven years. So no one's cutting back. You know, hey, we're gonna we're on the verge of rolling blackouts. Yeah, fine. I got to charge my Tesla because I want to go to the baseball game. Um, you know, so no one has this, you know, attitude that well, there's a real problem and I need to change my lifestyle. No one changes anything. So yeah, I get what you're saying, and I do think there is something to that. Yeah, um, interesting point too. We'll get in. I do want to bring up energy at some point, but um, before we get there, just let me ask you a question. You probably get asked this quite a bit. Um, and I want you to just kind of settle it for the folks watching and listening. Are we in a recession? Now, let me, the answer I've said is yes, I think we're in a recession or we were in a recession, full stop, over, no more discussion. Now, let me give you three points about that. One, it's a very, very mild recession. So it's nothing serious. Um, two, it's a wording thing, right? Because Modern economic or modern macroeconomics was developed in the 1920s. And when they were looking at business cycles, they used to call them panics. The panic of 1873, 18, or excuse me, 1893, 1907. And then in the 1930s, they started talking about when the economy turned down, oh, we're going to have another panic in the 1930s. And the Hoover administration said, no, no, you can't say the word panic. So they invented the word depression. Okay, so now we're calling it depression. Then in the 1970s, when the economy started getting bad, we started talking about the depression of the 70s and the Carter administration said, no, you can't use the word depression. So we invented the word recession. So then in the, so in 2022, when we started talking about, are we in recession? The Biden administration went nuts. No, it's not a recession. So now we call it a soft landing. Panic, depression, recession, soft landing. They're all the same thing. So yes, I think we're in a panic or depression or recession or soft landing. Now that I've said that, it is a very mild one because that word is emotionally charged. Because if I said, are we in a recession? That means, is it is the shit hitting the fan? 
Well, no, it's a mild one. Oh, well, then it's not a recession. Well, it still is. It's just we want to play these word games. But yes, the economy contracted in the first and second quarter. It didn't contract by much. The economy is not in a very good place. Now, why is that if we're creating all these jobs and everything else? Because it's measured on a real basis. And to give you an example for the second quarter, nominal growth in the second quarter, how much did the economy expand by was 7.8%. That's huge. 300, 400,000 jobs were created in the second quarter, you know, and we were, we were seeing retail sales go up, everything go up 7.8%. But inflation was 8.7% annualized in the second quarter. So real growth was minus 0.9. That's the other problem people are having is nominal growth is expanding. It's just not beating inflation. And recession is about negative real growth or after inflation. So yeah, I think we're having a recession. It's a mild one. We have high nominal growth. And it's all a word game that we've been playing for a hundred years, but it's all the same thing. Yeah. Let me ask you one uh, follow on just to inflation, just out of curiosity, like the CPI, um, the con construct of the CPI, CPI, like, you know, my inflation might not be your inflation. It's, it could be different for everyone. And um, the way they kind of calculate, um, you know, the uh, owner's equivalent rent. Uh, it, and the, you mentioned the housing prices going up. Like, how do you think about the construct of inflation? And do you think it's higher than what it's actually reported? Well, um, the thing about inflation is it's a, it's a very difficult thing to get your, you know, to get um, to really get around. And I think that they do as good a job as any. You mentioned owner's equivalent rent. The problem there is we just can't measure home prices and call that inflation because a home is both a physical asset and a financial asset. If my home, your home goes up in value, well, that might not be because of inflation. That also might be because of the financial aspect of my home is a financial investment increased in real value. Um, so they, they're trying to separate that out. The problem with inflation is when people talk about inflation, they get emotionally charged into two things, right? Food and energy, gasoline prices and what they pay at the grocery store. That seems to drive all of the, um, the narrative about inflation. Um, so it really, you know, and you can see it in the president's approval rating. I mean, you know, Biden's approval rating over the last four to six months is basically the inverse of gasoline prices right now. Um, and so that's really where it is. Now, people have different consumption baskets. If you tend to be in the lower end of the income, your consumption of food and energy is a higher percentage than people at the higher end of the income. So you're more affected at the lower end of income uh, because of, of rising gasoline prices and or rising food prices. So you definitely see that as well. But bear, keep this in mind about inflation too. Inflation impacts 100% of the population. Every single person feels inflation. Elon Musk feels it because of the cost inputs at Tesla and SpaceX. People on public assistance feel it. You and me, we feel it as well. A recession does not impact 100% of the population. It impacts those that lose their jobs. It impacts those that see downturns in their, in their industries, but maintain their jobs. But that's not 100% of the population. That's why inflation is so much different. I think Paul gets that, that people say, well, you know, we can't let unemployment go to 5%. And not to be callous about it, but so 
3.7% unemployment goes to 5% unemployment. That's 1.3% of the population lost its, lost its job. That's not good for them and their dependents. But that's 1.3% of the population versus 100% of the population, which is paying a lot more. And the bottom 40%, the bottom 40% of this, of, of this country doesn't own assets. They don't own their home. They don't have an investment portfolio. They didn't see a 29% rise in the stock market last year. They didn't see their home price go up 18% last year because they don't own those things. They're really hurt by inflation. So I'll give Paul credit. He's right. Look, if we have to create a recession, if we have to butcher the stock market, yeah, it's the price to pay because the pain that everybody else is feeling is so bad. The problem is we should have never been put in this position in the first place. But we were because of, of profligate policies that we had leading up to 2022. So you think the focus is right? The focus on tackling inflation is the right focus for the Fed? Right. I think it is. And I think what they're doing is right. I think, first of all, you know, they were they were reckless with a can of gasoline and some matches, and they set the house on fire. And now they're feverishly trying to put the fire out. Good. You're trying to put the fire out. But you should have never set the house on fire in the first place. So, you know, you could kind of look at it in both ways. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to energy. Um, you know, obviously, like the focus has been on Europe and getting into winter, the energy situation there. What's your assessment? And then we can start to kind of um, explore some of the broader implications of what's playing out in Europe. When the, when the Ukraine war started, one of the first things that the West did was we banned Russia from the SWIFT payment system. We froze the assets of the Russian Central Bank. The West, the modern West, which the United States is in, is hyper-financialized. And we thought we could use these financial tools to punish Russia. And we did. And you know, famously, Joe Biden gave a speech where he said we we're going to turn the ruble in the rubble. And for a while there, it looked like they were going to turn the ruble in the rubble. But what we failed to recognize was Russia, Putin, had another tool. He had his hand on the spigot of natural gas, and he's been closing that spigot to natural gas. Ru Europe has an over-reliance on Russian energy. All the pipelines for natural gas go from Russia to Europe. And right now, what's happening in Europe is two things. One, they have the gas they need to stay heated and have power for the summer. I mean, excuse me, for the winter. Um, their, their, their storage tanks are 82% full right now, which is where they should be in early September. The problem is the cost of doing that is intolerable. It is estimated to be as high as $2 trillion or 15% of GDP is going to have to be spent on making sure that everybody's going to be heated this summer, winter, excuse me, I keep saying summer. I want it to be summer forever. Uh, this winter and to be able to have power generation. Russia has already, if you believe the estimates, seen 80 or 90,000 of its young men killed in the Ukraine war. And Putin's popularity remains very high. They're ready for pain and suffering and sanctions. Their bet is everybody's going to be like Italy. Salvini, who's running the, who's the head of the League Party in Italy, and they have national elections on September 25th. He's leading in the polls on a platform of let's ditch all of these sanctions on Russia. This is too painful on us. It's terrible that they invaded the Ukraine and we don't want that. But I don't want to have to wear a sweater this winter. 
and I don't want to have to turn off the lights or pay astronomical um, heating, uh, heating bills. So let's just call the whole thing off. Russia's betting that a lot of Europe feels like Italy does right now, and that if they can basically gut it out, Europe will cave. And when Europe caves, Russia will eventually win. And so that's really where I think we are. This is part of this change you know, with the digital economy. And this is part of the problem when you were so globally interconnected and then strife came about because of that global interconnectedness. Each one of us has a tool that can really hurt the other one. And we're both exercising those tools right now. Yeah. Um, let's explore this situation even further. Like, you know, what it could mean for the economy in Europe, maybe from like a consumer who has to face these astronomically high bills? What does it mean for industry? Like, what are some of the the ripple effects of this? Oh, it's tremendous. I mean, if you've seen the producer price numbers in the in Europe, they're running at over thirty percent, near forty percent numbers. You know, this these are astronomically high inflation numbers, and this is largely because of the cost of energy at the producer level. This devastates manufacturing in Europe. The single biggest cost for any manufacturing is cheap energy. It's not labor, it's cheap energy. So I don't know what's gonna happen to Mercedes plants in Stuttgart or the BMW plants outside of Munich, how they're gonna be able to make cars that we can afford because of these astronomically high energy prices that they've had. Their aluminum business is essentially done. Um, the Bank of England came out and did something about a month or two ago, that was extraordinary. Not only did they raise their forecast that CPI in England would rise to 13%, and some are saying it might be closer to 20, but they've already forecasted a recession. Now to be clear, no developed central bank ever forecasts a recession. They always say there won't be one, there won't be one, there won't be one, there was one, it's over, it's over, it's over. They never, ever say we're going to have one. They either say there won't be one or it just ended. They're now saying there will be one. For the first time, I and I, I've looked at this, and I can't find another example of a modern central bank actually saying our economy is about to hit the skids really, really hard. Um, yeah, and so they know that this is going to be very bad for their economy. Their markets are somewhat reacting to it. And I say somewhat, why aren't they fully reacting to it? Because we're still ingrained with the last 25 years. Don't worry, the EU is gonna meet in Brussels on Friday. Lagarde will be there. They, you know, It'll be the day after they raise rates. They will come up with a magic tool and it's gonna make all of this go away. Why do we think that? Because through the pandemic and including the pandemic, they always found a magical tool to make everything go away. Mm -hmm. So don't get yourself worked up about this. They'll find a way to make it go away. Liz Truss, who's the new prime minister of, of the UK, is now just saying, we're going to have 170 billion pounds of um, support for people to pay their energy bills this winter. That's 5% of your GDP. That's more than you pay for nationalized health care like that. You just found that out of the sky. Where are you going to find that? Where are you going to find 5% of your GDP? You're going, to, you're going to raise taxes that much to cover it? You're going to know? 
you're going to rely on the, the bond market to basically let you borrow that kind of sum of money, 5% of your GDP. You don't have the Bank of England at zero and doing Q of E anymore. You have the Bank of England raising rates and talking about 18% inflation. So they're not going to help you with that. Um, so all of a sudden, but everybody's like, yeah, we'll find a way to work it out. This has always been, don't get too bearish. Don't get too bearish. We'll find a way to work these things out. Now, maybe we will because we always have. But right now, I think really this is part of this, my early argument. We're in a post-pandemic economy. It's a different economy that we will work it out means it's still 2019, which still all those rules still apply. Every time there's a terrible thing that happens, the pandemic being the ultimate one, we, you know, the stock market goes down for 30 days and then it goes up for a year and a half because we printed it to new highs. Don't worry, we'll figure out a way to get through this without economic pain. And you know, like the old adage, like this time is different, but what I'm hearing, like this time actually is different. This time is different is dangerous words on Wall Street. I understand that. And I was one that always used to say, beware of this time is different because it never is and it costs you a lot of money until it is. And then holy crap, does it cost you a lot of money if you don't understand it's different. Now, look, I'm a guy that has forecasts and have thought out my opinions. That doesn't mean I'm right. But I do believe that we are in a post-pandemic economy. The three bubbles of cheap labor uh, globalization and cheap energy are what has popped in the post-pandemic economy. And that's what's leading to all of these changes. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we find a way to make up with Russia and they turn on the spigots wide open and gas prices go back down to nothing. We find a way that we can just continue to get cheap stuff from China unabated and just see the prices of Walmart just continue to go down and down. And maybe we find a way to get rid of all of this great resignation stuff. And we go back to 1% raises for everybody instead of 5% raises. And we can return to 2% inflation. It's always possible that it can happen. I just don't see that happening, which is why I'm arguing that this time is different our uh, mantra. Yeah. Um, toward the beginning, I, I want to shift gears again. Um, and everything you're saying, it's so interesting to me. And I love the way you unpack your different um, theses. Uh, you mentioned crypto toward the top of our conversation that you're a big fan of crypto. You talk about this being like an idea that's been more modernized, like you talk about DeFi. Like, tell me a bit more about your thesis on crypto, because I noticed that you have uh, some laser eyes on yes. uh, Twitter. I've had laser eyes on Twitter now for going on two years or so. Um, and between you and me, I'm actually kind of sick of the picture uh, and I'd like to get rid of it, but I'm afraid that if I get rid of it, that it'll be misinterpreted. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get rid of it because I'm sick of the picture, uh, and, uh, but it'll be misinterpreted as uh, I've given up on crypto or something like that. I, I guess I'll hopefully wait for, for something. So I think that the problem is in the modern digital economy, we have disrupted a number of industries. We've disrupted, you know, the communications industry uh, through this medium that we're in now, the newspaper industry has been uh, disrupted. We've disrupted the transportation industry with Uber and Lyft. We've disrupted a number of other industries as well. But one of the things that has not been disrupted in a big way uh, is the financial services business. That is still operating under the same rules, under the same regulations that it has for nearly a century. And the modern world is very, very different right now. And I think that there's two, there's two problems that I, I see coming. The first problem is this is the whole argument for DeFi. 
is that the modern financial system, the modern payment system is broken. I, I used to tweet it out. I haven't tweeted it out in a few months, but an image of a, a, a telegram transfer from Western Union in 1873. Somebody sent $300 and it cost nine bucks. So it costs 3%. How much does it cost for remittances today in the modern economy in 2022? And I'm talking about remittances to a foreign country, about 3%. So what's happened in 150 years? Zero progress by the financial services industry in lowering their costs. It costs the same amount of money today to transfer money as it did 150 years ago. So there's been a big problem there, and that's been on the, the side of DeFi. On the other side, there is a problem with privatization. Now, this is where I get into the libertarian argument, uh, and I believe it as well, too. The problem I'd like to tell people is, my net worth, your net worth, everybody's net worth who's listening to this podcast is zero. The net worth we all own is held by a financial institution, and we trust that they have a ledger that they will allow us to use some of their money in order to do the things that we want with it, and it's okay with them. But what we're learning more and more is it is not okay with them. We are putting restrictions on what we could do with our money through reporting, you know, the, the great Western example of that is what they did to the Canadian truckers earlier this year, where the where what happened was the Canadian truckers obviously were protesting the, the vaccine requirements in Canada by by snarling Ottawa with their trucks. People donated to them. It was perfectly legal to donate to them. Then six weeks later, Canada invoked its Emergencies Act and said, we are now going to have retroactive laws. Remember six weeks ago, you gave a hundred bucks to those truckers because you thought that you were kind of for their rights about vaccines and it was perfectly legal. Well, today it's not. And because six weeks ago when it was legal, you gave that money and today it's not, we're going to freeze your bank account. And we're doing that more and more all the time. We're seeing money that is gone to purposes that we don't like being restricted. And so there's a movement, and this is where crypto is about, can money be private property? Can it be mine in a private a wallet that you don't know anything about, nor can you censor in any way? I ultimately think we're going to move in that direction because we're moving in that direction in a lot of other ways. Uh, and that's where crypto comes in. And that that whole idea about money being private property is the big regulatory pushback against crypto, is why left-leaning economists like Paul Krugman and Liz Warren are so anti-crypto. You might think that they would be for crypto. No, they're anti-crypto because it is private money that cannot be censored, it cannot be channeled, it cannot be dictated to what to do once it's in your own private wallet. And so I do think in the digital world, the payment system, the financial system is broken or not broken. It's not broken. It's not evolved for the new digital world. And I do think that the idea that we're putting too many restrictions on money is coming on as well, too. There was a good piece last week in Coindesk uh, about anti-money laundering and know your customer rules. Um, because this is the whole thing that, well, we can't, we can't allow private money. We can't because we have to, you know, get rid of all these money laundering and we have to, you know, crack down on the, uh, on the drug dealers that use money for their payments and stuff. The dirty little secret is it's very likely that anti-money laundering and know your customer rules are highly inefficient, 
very costly, do not accomplish what anybody wants to wants them to accomplish. They're not stopping any drug dealers. They're not stopping any terrorists. That's why most of all of the illicit activity that people blame on crypto actually takes place at Standard Charter and HSBC, who's been busted many times in doing a lot of these illicit activities. Yeah. The problem is we don't even want to look into it because we're afraid of the answer. We just, we just trust me, anti-money laundering rules work. You have to report every every transaction over $10,000. And we, we cannot allow crypto to exist because then we can't stop drug dealers. Like I said, the drug dealers are using the modern banking system right now. They're not using crypto to any great degree. So I do think that what you're seeing with crypto is a not ready for prime time, moving towards ready for prime time attempt to try and disrupt the financial services business, disrupt money. The problem with disrupting financial services and money is there's a lot of big, important vested interests that are not very happy about it. And it's that's why the pushback has been so great that you've seen. Just like, you know, you don't see that pushback when we were disrupting taxi cabs. You didn't see that kind of pushback when we were disrupting newspapers. But when you disrupt money and banking, oh boy, get out of the way. You watch how un, un, unbelievably upset Warren Buffett is going to get about this. Because Warren Buffett is probably going to be the biggest loser if we wind up uh, really disrupting the financial services business to the degree that crypto and DeFi promise to. Yeah. And like, even amid this sell-off, like what do you, what do you like in, within crypto? Do you like Bitcoin? Do you like Ethereum? Well, I, I think first of all, you know, we're talking a week-ish before the merge right now. And so everything is going to grind to a halt on the merge. Uh, I'm hoping that post-merge, what will come out of this is I've been I've been noting every weekend I run a tweet where I point out the correlation between financial markets, TradFi markets, the S&P 500 and Bitcoin. And it's 90%, you know, they move up and down together. And that cryptos are basically a highly levered version of, um, you know, the S&P 500. And the reason I run it on the weekend, I was like, you want to know how the markets are going to open on Monday? Watch what Bitcoin does since the New York Stock Exchange closed over the weekend, is it down or is it up? That'll give you a leading indicator as to where we're gonna go. And I don't think that that's correct, that we should just view Bitcoin or ETH or anything else in the crypto space as just a 3X or 4X version of the NASDAQ, NDX or the SPY, but that's what it is. And so I'm hoping post-merge, you know, month or two past the merge, once we've gotten to proof of stake and we start moving forward and all these questions about whether there's going to be a fork or a problem are behind us, that we could start seeing the whole crypto space become a little bit more independent than just a highly levered version of the stock market. So when you ask me, what do I like in crypto right now? Well, first of all, I don't really pump coins and I never really to like to pump coins, but I'll just point out the trap that it's in right now is it's a highly levered version of a market that's falling. And that is the, 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 you know, the, the stock market right now. Now, eventually I would love one weekend to basically put out that chart and say, Hey, look at this. Bitcoin's down a zillion point or up a zillion points. And the stock market's doing exactly the opposite. Even if it fell, I'd say that's good because now it's becoming independent of that. And we could stop looking at that relationship. But as long as that relationship exists, 
That's the problem with crypto. Now, I'm one who thinks that that relationship will eventually end. I'm hoping that once we get post-merge, that that is a catalyst that these things start to take on a life of their own and not just a levered version of the S&P 500. Well, Jim, this has been a fascinating conversation. You detailed these this moving away from these three bubbles that have popped, this new post-pandemic economy we've um, we've entered um, full of great change and volatility and tremendous opportunity if you catch it right. Do you have any parting thoughts for the folks um, listening and watching at home? Yeah, I think that uh, what you just said last is what I was going to say, is that um, this is not an all-boats-float-again um, environment. Now, there might be eventually in the next month, two, three, six, some kind of another low and another rally where all the boats go up. But a secular market that goes up again, I think that this is going to be more of a differentiated type of market where as we look at where the changes are coming and where the changes are going, that there's going to be very different things. Look, if crypto works, I think that one of the worst sectors of just to give you an, an example, one of the worst sectors of the S&P 500 in the last 25 years has been the financial services. You know, the quickest way, as I like to say, the quickest way to become an ex-portfolio manager is fall in love with bank stocks. They've just, uh, th that's why God created them, is to basically wreck your career. Because that's what they've done. The bank stocks have pretty much done nothing but lose you money for the last 15 years or so. I think that's a market signal that there's a disruption coming, that there needs to be a disruption in the banking system. And I think decentralized finance could be it. I think there's other disruptions coming as well when we start looking at um, you know, the changes that this economy needs to have. So I think we need to go back to looking for opportunities as opposed to looking for the Fed to cut rates and start printing money and shove everything higher. So yeah, it's a, it's a place to find opportunity it's not so much a place to just say, when is everything going to go back up again, like it did from 2010 to 2020? I think that era is over. Well, Jim, where can folks find you? Where can they go learn more? Uh, probably uh, Twitter, at Bianco Research, the name of my firm, or under my name, Jim Bianco on LinkedIn, or BiancoResearch.com is my uh, website. I have to say, this is a, such a fascinating conversation. I'm so thankful that I finally got to meet you. And I feel like I learned a lot and I think the viewers and listeners will too. So thank you so much, Jim, for your time. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Appreciated it. Take care.